Take a network break. We've got a batch of virtual donuts just out of the fryer, so help yourself as we peruse this week's IT news. We'll talk about new quantum computing processors from IBM, new DPUs from Marvell, AI to help you with firewall rules from Cisco, financial results, space networking, and a little bit more. We're sponsored today by Doit. Reduce your cloud spend by improving your cloud efficiency with Doit, an award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS. You can find out more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T.com. And if you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts on the network, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Heavy Wireless, and Kubernetes Unpacked. You can find them all at packapproach.net. Uh, before we get to the news, we have one FU or follow-up. Last week, we talked about a newly announced Trident chip from Broadcom. In our conversation, we mentioned that the downlinks to the server can go up to 400 gig. Broadcom wanted to let us know that it can feasibly support an 800 gig downlink to the NIC, but they aren't aware of anyone yet making an 800 gig NIC. Uh, so thank you, Broadcom, for the FU. And I guess if someone does come out with an 800 gig NIC, we will probably talk about it here. My instinct here is to say there'll be some limitations. The ASIC is 51 terabits. So that doesn't mean that you can have 4,800 gig NICs, I suppose. Maybe you can, but... Um... You know, you, there'll be some sort of limitations in the internal architecture. The ASIC may be able to support it, but you've got to be able to run the uh, data lanes out to the front presentation. And so there'll be questions there that you would want to follow up. But I didn't realize nobody was making 800 gig NICs, I guess. It's, uh, I sort of thought that that was a thing, that with AI servers, they were getting up to that sort of speed, or at least that's the hype cycle that we got. So perhaps there's a practical issue here in that it is just 400 gig. When I say just, I mean relatively just. <laughs> it's still pretty good. <laughs> That's still pretty awesome. Exactly. So Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as always, if you have a correction, a comment, a query, whatever, you just want to reach out to us, you can find us at packapushers.net slash FU. The FU is for follow-up. All right, let's dive into the news. Quantum computing hasn't reached the same hype level as AI, uh, but I can sense tremors in the distance as big names are ramping up around the promotional machinery. A case in point is IBM. They just announced their newest quantum processor called Quantum Heron, and a quantum computer, IBM Quantum System 2. IBM says the Heron is a 133-qubit processor and delivers the, quote, highest performance metrics and lowest error rates of any IBM quantum processor to date. That's an end quote. The Heron's predecessor was a 127-qubit processor, so you see those qubits starting to ramp up. Uh, as for the computer, it's the Quantum System 2. It's an enclosure that's 15 feet tall and about the length of a car. It combines classical compute infrastructure, quantum processors, and the cryogenic infrastructure necessary to keep the system at the ultra-low temperatures required for quantum computing. So if you are getting into quantum computing, you are going to be buying very large equipment. My favorite part is, after all that said, you know, size of a car, cryogenic, it's modular, Drew. That's right. Yes. They made a big point of it being modular. Yes. And that you could just go and add another couple of bays and add a few more racks. You know, you can buy each rack and all that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought that was deeply amusing in the sense that, you know, as long as you've got cryogenic infrastructure. I guess I haven't been following quantum computing very closely, Drew. It doesn't seem to be a big thing for the enterprise. I think a lot of the high-performance compute people are watching it very closely. But my sense there is that a lot of HPC and AI doesn't seem to overlap with quantum processing yet. So we're not seeing AI being predicated on the use of quantum computers. So if quantum computers are so so much awesomeness for processing something, right, for uh -huh. computing stuff, uh -huh. why is AI not rushing off to get quantum computers? And there's a disconnect there that I don't understand. So I'll admit that I've been caught a little bit unprepared, but I do think that this is kind of like IBM saying, we'll be ready to ship this in a year or two. If I remember rightly, this said, was thinking of shipping sort of late 2024. It's not shipping today. Did I get that right? You know, in reading all through the press release, I don't know about shipping. So we'd have to double check on that. Uh, uh, maybe yeah. we can follow up on that. Yeah. 
I had this feeling from the press release, this kind of a boutique announcement. If you want, if you know what you want, come and talk to us because we've got one. You know, I don't think they're going to put them on the shelf and have them ready to go. I think it's more like a custom build type process. And that whole market is moving very, very quickly. So at 133 qubits, yes, that is an, a, that's a huge amount of processing and so forth and so on. Um, it, and there are lots of things they're doing. They're, they're licensing technology from various companies. They're talking about, there was another press release related to this, which I was looking at earlier today, where they're um, massively improving the error correction. The quantum states are incredibly fragile. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's some sort of technology or software that can be added that dramatically removes the errors or reduces the errors. And so massively improves the throughput. And of course, that's a license that you have to enable, but IBM resells that technology into the, this computing platform. I also think IBM is probably one company who's well positioned to sell these because they've got a history of selling room-sized computers, you know, the mainframes <laughs> of old. It sure as hell looks like a mainframe in the videos that I saw. Yes. My question is, does this matter for the enterprise? Is it going to be an enterprise or are you, if you're the company that sort of knows what a quantum computer could do for you, then you're probably not in the general market. I think, you know, sort of like the early days of computing, this is really aimed at universities with research labs at, um, you know, dedicated government labs that are doing high energy physics, doing uh, deep chemistry, doing material science. That's really what it's for. It's not uh, going to be in your data center anytime soon. Uh, but the fact that it is happening and is being rolled out means that maybe someday uh, you and I will be yeah. uh, touching quantum computing. Um, I, like you, have not fully wrapped my head around the concepts of quantum computing, it is a very different approach uh, that involves a lot of strange new terminology that I'm trying to understand. Mm. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, I think it's clear that IBM's strategy is to return to that business model of the mainframe uh, because these systems require mm. you to use IBM quantum processors inside IBM enclosures, and it's all built around something called IBM's uh, quiz kit. It's a software development kit that's necessary to develop applications to actually operate in this quantum computing realm. So it is that sort of if you want it, you got to buy it from IBM, which is a very, which is how IBM likes to operate. Well, I, I was reading a financial call where a IBM executive was speaking to analysts, not on a financial call, but in a general conference type of thing. And he said, for every one dollar we sell as a platform, we sell three to five dollars of software and six to eight dollars of professional services. Yeah. So, you know, if you're spending, you know, ten million on a quantum computer or fifty million. You can expect to spend another two hundred million on software to run on it, and you can expect to spend a you know <laughs> six to eight times that for the same amount, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's IBM's business model. So I think Quantum <laughs> is well suited to IBM yes, in that sense. Absolutely. Whether companies, you know, so if you're going to sort of get involved in that, the ROI, do the whole return on investment. Not right. Make sure you IBM. look at that cost line on the, the you know the maintaining that cryogenic infrastructure. I'm I'm guessing that's not cheap. <laughs> professional services has got good margin, Drew. Absolutely. And that's really where IBM has been successful for decades. So. Sure. Yeah. So we'll see how quantum computing develops, but uh, interesting that uh, I, I guess it is an area where IBM feels like they can, you know, stake out perhaps an entirely new territory. Uh, so nice to mm. see them looking toward the future. Lots of links in the show notes if you want to go read up on it. Uh, but we'll now pivot from the quantum realm back to AI. Cisco Systems has announced a new offering called the Cisco AI Assistant for Security. It's being manifested in two ways. First is the AI Assistant for Firewall Policy. The software runs in Cisco's cloud-based firewall management center and lets network and security operators use natural language queries to discover firewall policies, 
eliminate duplicate policies, get rule recommendations, and find and correct misconfigured policies. The second manifestation is an encrypted visibility engine for all of Cisco's firewall models. Cisco says it can identify if traffic is carrying malware. Even if that traffic is encrypted, the engine doesn't have to decrypt the traffic to do this inspection. And Cisco says this capability is now available in the 7.4.1 operating system release for the Cisco Secure Firewall product family. So this goes into the AI will be added to anything and everything oh, yeah. uh, folder, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether it needs it or not, by the way. And uh, I don't see a lot of differentiation here. I don't think Cisco is leading here. I think it's great that they're shipping it. And I think for, its, for Cisco's customers, this is pretty good news. And obviously, I've talked before about, I think that for cybersecurity and security and for firewalls and for security infrastructure, AI is absolutely a game changer. Remember, um, it's this week. Uh, in the U.S. that the U.S. government or the SEC, uh, Securities Exchange Commission, its rule goes into effect that requires companies to disclose cybersecurity incidents Mm -hmm. publicly. So if you're a publicly listed company, you're now required to disclose them within four business days or risk the wrath. And so uh, that starts uh, next week. So you're going to see a sort of a whole thing. This idea of adding an LLM to policy configurations, I've seen this in plenty of other places like even down on switches and routers. Uh, it was just a few weeks ago we did a, a sponsored show with Nokia mm-hmm. talking about they added the, the chat GPT LLM so that you can ask queries and they've got videos showing you how to do that. So this doesn't feel new, adding an AI system for a firewall policy so that you can use natural language to discover policies and get rule recommendations. Eliminating duplicate rules is, is absolutely something that um, an LLM could do. The question here is how accurate it is and, and will it be the right thing? Um, that ability to eliminate duplicate rules, if you've got a rule base, um, I've certainly worked on firewalls with 100,000 to 500,000 rules. Yes. Well knowing that there's duplicates in there and they <laughs> should be taken out. And old rules and who knows what other rules, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And misconfigured policies and mm-hmm. you know all sorts of things. And if you've got a really complex configuration, it's very difficult for a human to get through that. So there is a thing here. So I do feel like this is something that Cisco would be able to offer its customers that, that they would want. And the AI-powered encrypted visibility engine, I'm a little underwhelmed here, Drew, because we've talked to Palo Alto and Fortinet, and there are other security companies out there who've been using AI-derived models to detect traffic. Certainly, uh, you look at all the the CASBs out there, Cloudflares and Zscaler and all those, they've been using AI processing to be able to do that. So for Cisco to sort of announce this as a feature, I just had assumed that they were automatically doing this. Feels like table stakes. So if Cisco is genuinely announcing this for the first time, then it feels like it's coming from behind. Without more information, I don't have anybody at Cisco I could contact to ask and clarify whether they're just re-announcing it. That does happen sometimes where companies come and re-announce a feature that you know hasn't seemed to be picked up by the market or people aren't aware for it. So I do sort of feel this is fine. It's good for customers. They'll be able to get features that you know that improve the posture, improve cybersecurity, reduce the cost of operating cybersecurity infrastructure. But I'm not sure that this is market leading, and certainly doesn't serve some of the uh, some of the claims Cisco writes. You know that Cisco goes a bit heavy on the uh, adjectives in its posts when it introduces something these days. Of course, I, I I do think Cisco is correct that particularly on the uh, firewall front, it is an issue. It's a significant problem. It's hard to untangle. So it does seem like a place where maybe AI could be helpful. And Cisco is going after companies like Tufin, Algosec, Firemon, and others who have dedicated themselves to this issue. So I, I'd be curious to see sort of a head-to-head comparison, uh, how it stacks up against uh, companies that have already been doing this for a long time and how successful those companies have been, whether they've been successful or not. So yeah, I, there's a lot to chew on there. Uh, as for the encryption, um, we've talked about other efforts where 
uh, security folks, including Cisco, have done research into using metadata uh, from encrypted uh, payloads uh, that, that the essential the headers that aren't encrypted uh, to see if they can, you know, get indicators that there might be malware in there. I don't know if that's uh, an amplification of this or some other technique. I'd like to dig into it more, uh, but it does sound a little bit like magic to say we can detect malware inside encrypted traffic. So I, I, I need to hear more about that before I get on board. <laughs> yeah, and they were also doing that in the campus as well. Now, perhaps they weren't doing it using AI. And so maybe that's the upgrade here. I mean, that idea of looking at it. The other question here is, should customers expect to pay extra for this or should it be a standard feature? I'm not, um, <laughs> vendors will tell you. Greg, that, this you is know, Cisco we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the flip side here is, you know, a lot of these LLMs are free. Like you can go and get a hugging face model for, you know, or whatever, and they're open source. And adding in an LLM and to do queries doesn't really cost a whole lot. Like uh, free like a puppy, though. That's <laughs> just because you can yeah. get the algorithm. It's expensive to train and, and operate. It takes a lot of equipment and, and processing power. Yeah, well, I mean, my point here is that it's a standard feature, right? Everybody's got it is my general point. Or if mm -hmm. they haven't got it, they will have it sort of by the end of next year sort of thing. So it should be a standard feature. It shouldn't be an upgrade. It should just be folded into the product. And that's just a cost of doing business. And the flip side here is, yes, the vendors do have the data. You remember, you've been uploading data to the vendors for the last three or four years uh, into their cloud services, and then they can potentially train, you know, by taking a model from somebody, a free mm -hmm. model usually, and then training the last 20% relevant to this particular thing. They've got the data to do that. It's not enormously difficult. So I do feel like if, if the vendors try and charge too much for it, you'd have to question whether it's worthwhile. We'll see how it goes. But it is interesting to see AI, you know, reducing the cost of operations, absolutely something that we need. I'm just questioning how much we'll pay for it. Is it going to be too much? Sure. I think by this time next year, all of the major vendors are going to have some kind of AI-infused capabilities throughout their product set, and it's not going to be a competitive advantage anymore. Uh, and it's, then we'll get into the usual stuff about how effective is it, how much am I being charged for it as a way to help you to differentiate which, which products to invest in. Uh, I think at the moment, Cisco can still say, yeah, we're AI, we're on the cutting edge, but this time next year, that that's not going to be an effective claim. Yeah, I don't think so. But I'm, I would also just question, Cisco hasn't got a great track record of developing software. It's in-house. And this software is, as best as I can tell, is been developed in-house. So maybe uh, don't rush in. <laughs> yes. Wait for wait wait for someone else. The the gap between the bleeding edge and the leading edge here is pretty thin. Yeah. And maybe it'd be best to wait until Cisco's got some, you know, there might be some pain here. Cisco's got a... Uh, you know, long reputation of rushing things before they're quite ready. Um, they do move a bit slower than some other companies. So maybe don't rush in based on that history here. Yeah. Be, be cautious, I think. All right, links in the show notes if you want to dig into more. Uh, last week, we covered Marvell's modest financial results. This week, the company has announced two new DPUs designed to accelerate network and security functions in routers, firewalls, 5G small cells, SD-WAN appliances, and topper rack switches. Uh, these new uh, DPUs use a five nanometer design. They are the Octeon DPUs. Uh, they have up to eight ARM cores, and Marvell claims the new DPUs are using 50% less power compared to previous versions. Yeah, we don't see people talk about Marvell a lot, but they do make silicon for the, they're probably one of the largest makers of silicon or vendors of silicon, but they don't do a lot to reach the end customer. They don't promote their products like Broadcom or NVIDIA or mm -hmm. AMD. So, mm -hmm. You know, there are four companies really working on DPU hardware at the moment, Intel, AMD, Marvell, and NVIDIA. I'm sure you've heard from Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA, right? Even if you're in the enterprise, <laughs> they would have been in your face with some marketing for yes, sure. Yes, yes. Marvell tends not to do that. And, you know, is that a thing? So that's why I wanted to draw this out and say, you know, making a DPU isn't particularly hard. 
And it's not limited to just a couple of companies. It's not just NVIDIA with their Bluefield or AMD with Pensando. There's quite a lot of companies that are boosting up their silicon in this space. One of the things I saw interesting about um, this particular one is that, you know, now has eight um, Neoverse cores that sort of moves them up to the same thing. Power consumption, all sorts of spec in claims about things. I think the interesting thing here is that they really pitch it as um, up an appliance thing. So I think what they're saying is that in the past, people would buy smart nicks and put them inside an appliance and use it to an accelerator. You know, they put a custom NOS and they'd call some ACIs on the NIC. So that's how you get 100 gig firewalls and mm -hmm. 400 gig firewalls. Mm -hmm. They seem to be pitching this as use it for that. So instead of buying smart NICs, now you can buy our DPU and you can start to use those. But also what they're saying is you can use them in 5G small cells. And that's something we've seen DPUs promoted heavily for. So if you're doing 5G um, edge you know, clusters where the towers are there and there's a, all of a software-based infrastructure where before it was all hardware, if you put DPUs into those servers, you can start to do accelerated routing, accelerated firewalling. You can do a lot of the 5G processing functions in the, in the smart NIC, in the DPU, instead of doing it just on a general purpose CPU for power savings. And that's one of the things that Marvel may be very successful at pitching to. Yeah, so uh, capabilities of these uh, Octeons include hardware-based packet acceleration and the ability to support 50 gigabits per second of IPsec encryption decryption using half of a single ARM core. Uh, so I feel like Marvel is going after folks who might have been building appliances and leveraging things like Intel's DPDK to make a general-purpose CPU a little bit more optimized for packet processing. And now instead of mm -hmm. doing that, you can just let that CPU do what it needs to do uh, and stick this uh, DPU in to do some of those offloads. Yeah. I mean, to me, I would have been out there trying to sell DPUs to anyone and everyone, right? Not sure. Just, <laughs> yes. you know, get the customers asking their vendors for them, which is what NVIDIA and you know AMD are doing. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I just thought it was interesting that they brought out these DPU processors with fairly limited fanfare. They just basically published a blog post. So Yep. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, MEF, that's the entity formerly known as the Metro Ethernet Forum, has announced a new portfolio of standards-based IP services and APIs designed to help service providers deliver network-as-a-service or NAS offerings. And Greg, I guess you're reading this announcement as kind of an effort by MEF uh, to maintain its relevance as an industry association. The Metro Ethernet Forum now renamed MEF, and they say <laughs> it is not an acronym. Did you... I, I didn't see that, but <laughs> I dug into some of the history of the and they make a big deal about the fact that it rhymes with ref and despite popular belief is not an acronym. Well, I remember it as the Metro Ethernet Forum. So uh, maybe they're, they're doing some rebranding. That's fair enough because Metro Ethernet is really not a thing anymore. And there's one way to look at the MEF is that it was a collective action by a group of network operators that had a specific niche market. And what they wanted to do was drive Ethernet in the marketplace. There was a time 20 years ago when the vendors were all about IP and they really stopped, wanted to stop talking about Ethernet. Mm, mm -hmm. But there was a significant number of network operators who wanted to offer Ethernet services to customers. And so the Metro Ethernet Forum became the place where operators would go, define specifications, and then go to the vendors and say, you have to support these specifications. Mm -hmm. And the MEF kind of then grew into... Um, a for-profit standards body. What I mean by that is, yes, the members contribute money to it, but around the edge of the MEF became a bunch of um, consultants and uh, and an ecosystem around it, which became very much a for-profit uh, type of operation to say, we can help you certify, you, you know, and so forth. And um, I think the MEF is now looking for a second act. It needs to find a way out of being involved with Metro Ethernet because Metro Ethernet's not a thing. 
they seem to have made some half-hearted attempts at becoming a certification provider. Mm. Remember, we've often talked about how could you certify somebody? Where could you go for training and be certified? Mm-hmm. And the MEF has some sort of done that, but it really looks like they spent a couple of years working on it and they hired a bunch of people and then it sort of faded away. <laughs> so, so, But having a certification provider for WAN, SAS, and cybersecurity is a thing. But this announcement, I think, is what they're trying to do is promote themselves as a standard bodies for the global ecosystem of network as a service. So this is this idea that you go out and you buy network functions, you buy over-the-top bandwidth from a bunch of companies, you basically just send the traffic into the internet somewhere or into a private network, and somehow the net, the traffic gets to where you want to be. There's an overlay network being built. And that kind of idea of overlay networking and cloud network is pretty well established but there's no standard. So if you buy something from, you know, one of the companies like, um, you know, Alkira or Aviatrix, you're going to be in a situation where you, one or the other, you can't have both. And they would say, well, if you're going to use those services, there should be some standard APIs. Okay. Do you think we need APIs, Drew? Do you really think they need to be standardized? Well, I, I, I don't think there's a problem with standardizing around APIs. Well, the challenge here is, if you think about it, I agree with you. Like in principle, you should say, okay, if I'm going to use APIs, I'm going to offer services. If I'm going to, you know, talk to AWS or Google, they should use the same APIs. They should be standardized. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think those companies have decided that, no, you're going to have to talk to my APIs. What I also see is that when we talk to the vendors about their software-defined, you know, tools that sits over the top, they're using their own abstractions. So they have their mm-hmm. own internal models. And then... Whatever they're talking to, whether it's brand A, brand B, brand C, or appliance A, or appliance, you know, if it's a firewall, it's a router to switch. What they do is they read the configuration state and then uh, map that onto their internal model. So you look at companies like Forward Networks with their, you know, inte- uh, their formal verification, which actually does exactly that, builds a model for everything. And so what that means is bringing in third-party APIs is actually really simple. Because you don't have to restructure your whole software or write a custom module for it. All you need to do is make a translation module that says, oh, you are presenting as a firewall. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I will suck you into my firewall model and and away we go. I don't need to be a big thing. So third-party support doesn't seem to be difficult. Look at companies like Anuda or Juniper Abstra or Attential or Glueware. They're all about supporting third-party products right. and delivering services across a range of different products. If that's the case, do you then need to standardize APIs? I think that's the thing is that APIs, you know, don't necessarily need to follow a specific standard as long as they're exposing the features that you need and using models that you mm-hmm. can work with with your own system. Uh, so, yes, I, I take your point there that does there yeah. need to be a, a standards body for these particular set of APIs? Uh, I don't know. Now, the MEF has historically been involved in a telco or network operator setting, so at the biggest scale of the network. but to me, it sounds a little bit like, like when I go and read their documentation, you know, and I and I read some of their white papers, and they always talk about blockchain, which sort of <laughs> throws up a you know, red, red flag. flags. <laughs> red flags. Is it old, or do they genuinely believe that there's a place for blockchain in 2023? I don't know, but I just sort of feel like what we've got now is a situation where software is so pervasive that if you're going to present an API, you know, a Cisco, um, you know, routing API or a Juniper firewall API, or if you're going to go and get checkpoint or whatever, it's just the software that sits on the top is quite willing and able to take those APIs as presented and do something with them. I mean, some of them are even automated, like talk about potential. They can read an API and they have an automated process to create for a new appliance that's 80% automated. 
right? They don't have to do a hundred percent manual suck, you know, creation of a whole new device in right. their model. Right. They just have to map it, and most of that's automated. That's true for everybody. Uh, I mean, look at Anuda. They support. Last time we spoke to them, they support like three thousand separate third-party products or something, mm -hmm. right? Not. It's not that hard. I think in 2023, 2024, you know, defining a global NAS, building a global NAS provider. I'm less convinced that this is a need or whether it's the MEF trying to find a, a way to stay relevant as it's becoming increasingly not necessary. Right. And you know how these bodies exist. They like they exist, they have money, they have people attached to them, they have people who fly to their events. They have to have a reason for existing. And so they just sort of stumble on until they reach some sort of wind down. And I, I'm just not convinced that MEF has grabbed onto the right thing here. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a link in the show notes if you want to read up uh, on what MEF is up to. And if you are a MEF advocate, you can always hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU and, and let us know why you think they're valuable. Uh, I'll take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Do It. Do It can help you with your cloud challenges. Maybe you want to maximize your cloud while maybe you want to maximize your cloud use while controlling costs, or perhaps the issue is balancing resource utilization while delivering agile IT. Maybe you just can't get good support from your cloud partners. Doit can help. An award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS, Doit works with over 3,000 customers to save them time and money. Doit combines intelligent software with expert consultancy and unlimited support to deliver cloud at peak efficiency with ease. The Doit team knows multi-cloud, cloud analytics, optimization, governance, Kubernetes, AI, and more. So work with Doit to optimize your cloud investment so you can stay focused on business growth. You can find out more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. Right back into the news, the live streaming service Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, is shutting down operations in South Korea in February of 2024. The company cited the high cost of operating Korea, saying it's 10 times more expensive than most other countries to get access to the networks in Korea. Uh, that's tough for Twitch, given that a massive chunk of its users are gamers, and South Korea is a global leader in esports, so not being there is hard for Twitch. Yeah, it, this is really extraordinary. I wanted to bring it here. First, I thought it was a net neutrality issue. And it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. The Korean government implemented fair use legislation four or five years ago that allows large content providers like the telcos, the, con the network operators, to charge um, big content, content providers, providers yeah. Yeah, for their networks, right? So the local tel telcos are basically charging them too much for transporting traffic. Now, keep in mind, right? Remember, it wasn't too long ago, everybody was um, saying that in South Korea how awesome it was that you could have, I don't know, gigabit to every flat or something like that. Right. So it's possible that they overinvested in those networks. But notwithstanding, um, and, and Twitch has said basically, look, it's just too expensive. Now, they're not just shutting up shop. They're actually helping um, their, their streamers, so the people who are on their platform, giving them the tools to migrate to other platforms. This isn't... Um, like a game or a tactic or a let's play politics. This is, no, no, we're done. We're closing mm -hmm. up. If mm -hmm. you're on our platform and you're an e-gamer or, you know, you've got to build a following on, on Twitch, here's tools to actually help you migrate your customer base to a third-party platform. Bang, done. Wow. Straight up business decision, too expensive. So uh, it's, 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 it's a real shock in the sense, and it's going to be interesting to see if what the new net neutrality people make of this, because they're going to sit there and say, well, hey, if you have net neutrality and you try and charge content providers, they might just pull out and go. Yeah. I mean, I think it is another reason why I'm glad we have net neutrality here in the US, because it is defined in, uh, to present in part. Um, one of the, thing, one of the uh, things that happens is 
like there's been a, a lawsuit with Netflix in South Korea where they were having to raise prices because of the charges that the uh, networks were charging them to deliver to customers. So it's mm-hmm. a, you know, not necessarily great for consumers. It's also uh, gives a competitive advantage to deep pocketed incumbents. Uh, it makes it harder for smaller or uh, companies or yeah. competitors to enter the market. So yeah, I, I'm glad we don't have this model in the US and I, I have to wonder if South Korea is gonna reconsider this, they call it sending party network pays policy. I also was reading that apparently content delivery networks, you know, where the caching providers are and so mm-hmm. forth, they deliberately don't put their pops in South Korea <laughs> because it's too expensive. They have to pay to put that traffic into the network. So what they do is just put it in a neighboring country. <laughs> and so now the telcos can't charge them for the traffic because it comes from international sources. But And it's actually worse because now all that traffic has to come out of the network. So they would have been better off having the content delivery network caching inside of the network. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah, and I read an article that's talking about this policy saying that it's making folks like Facebook, which obviously don't want to have to pay to access uh, end users, they may not decide to build out more fiber to South Korea because they would just get charged for it. So that also mm-hmm. cuts off, you know, South Korea from getting access to the broader internet or makes it, you know, it reduces their yeah, options yeah. for getting onto the internet. So there's a yeah, lot. So that, you're not going to produce submarine cables is what you're... I think submarine you're cables, yes. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah international. Yeah. So it, it limits their international connectivity um, that, you know, otherwise Facebook might build for them. So yeah. uh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Now, apparently India has also implemented similar legislation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. based on the fact that South Korea did this. And obviously the telcos in India, who doesn't want free money, right? Who sure. Absolutely. If you're a telco, you know? absolutely. This sounds great. But <laughs> everybody else, I don't think, likes it. And it's just very, I mean, this is a really structural change. It's all politics and business. And I know it's not technology and nerdy, but to me, this really feels like, like Twitch had previously turned down um, their streaming to 720p to try and maintain costs. But like I said, this isn't argy-bargy or making politics or just doing it for the headlines. They are saying to the Twitch streamers in South Korea, we're done. Here's a bunch of tools. You can go take your stream, your subscribers somewhere else. We're out. So it, it's a real full-on you know, business decision. It's not anything else. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, Broadcom announced its fourth quarter and full year results for 2023. The company had revenues in the fourth quarter of $9.3 billion, up 4% year over year, and net income of $3.5 billion, just slightly up over this time last year. For the full year, Broadcom brought in revenues of $35.8 billion, up 8% year over year, which is a record for the company, and net income of $14 billion. Uh, in the press release, CEO Hock Tan cited hyperscaler investments in AI as the primary driver of Broadcom's fortunes. The thing that I took away from the analyst discussion, Drew, was that the enterprise is on a down cycle. So enterprise IT is either stopping buying, which is sometimes some people believe that, or another one is that they've bought a whole bunch of stuff over the last three years and they're still, they've got... They've got a bunch of inventory that's sitting in a warehouse or waiting to be deployed. And until that deployment is finished, they're not going to ramp up sales. And that's dragging down sales as well. So you can pick which side of that particular one that you're on. Yeah. And so Broadcom's numbers weren't awesome. And as at this morning, they fell 3% yesterday. They're up a little bit today, neither here nor there. At time of recording, I don't think Broadcom will be changed much until the VMware acquisitions come through. And we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, so of course, you know, as we know, Wall Street is all about the future and Broadcom forecast revenues of $50 billion for its fiscal year 2024 for next year, uh, which does include revenues from its just completed VMware acquisition. But that was a couple of billion dollars lower than analysts were forecasting. So Broadcom shares did fell fall. Uh, so, you know, it's all about the future. <laughs> it's only a couple of billion. Cisco had a, had a uh, 12% fall when it missed by a couple of billion. So that's not too bad. I, I can see, you know, the CEO talking to the analyst like, come on, yeah. what's what's a couple of billion between friends, guys? Come on. <laughs> he did break. try. 
I mean, from 38 billion to 50 billion in the next year and Wall Street's still like not good enough. That's that's hard cheese there. Well, uh, yeah. Now tell me what you did for me yesterday. Tell exactly. me what you'll do for me tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and in the earnings call, we also did get confirmation from Hakton that uh, Broadcom is going to sell off VMware's carbon black and end user computing businesses. Part of the process here is of reading about Broadcom more and understanding more about how they do business. And I read an article that said Broadcom operates like a private equity business. So that is, they buy assets, they strip out the parts, they bundle other parts together to get at benefits, and then they operate them very efficiently. And that's very much a private equity thing to do. So I think, you know, if you recall the brocade acquisition a decade ago, Drew, I guess it's a decade ago now, you know, remember they bought up brocade and all they really wanted was the fiber channel and they got right. rid of the ethernet and the yes. Wi-Fi and the all the other parts of the business and they spent, you know, basically just gave them away to anybody who wanted them, more or less. I think exactly they sold true, off the Ethernet know. side to Extreme, if I recall. Yeah, they sold off some of it to Extreme. The wireless went to Ruckus and there was a whole bunch of different stuff that went off to different places as well. The campus stuff went somewhere else as well. But, you know, I think Broadcom is, uh, the one way to look at Broadcom accurately is to say, yeah, it's a private equity operation. They buy companies, they run them very efficiently, but they're not going to build much and they're not going to innovate much. They're going to put them on a train track and you're going to know exactly where it's going. A private equity firm that also happens to build ASICs. That's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, you can invest in ASICs on the same sort of basis that you're looking very tightly at cash flow, but I don't think you're going to see new products coming out of VMware. I think you're going to see a very well run, very focused, but he has committed to increasing research and development. But I think that's necessary because the VMware product is not, at the leading edge today. So it's probably a good thing that, you know, for customers in the end, you might start to see a, a better vCloud foundation, a better cloud, on-prem cloud type features coming out of VMware. Yes. Just don't count on it being cheaper. Well, you know, you've always got choices. You can go somewhere else. All right. Uh, our last story for today will be space networking. Uh, Amazon has announced it's partnering with SpaceX to launch satellites for Project Kuiper, which is Amazon's effort to get into the business of providing broadband internet from satellites. <laughs> ah, needs must when the devil <laughs> puts you in a bad situation. Uh, the underlying driver here is that Kuiper has spectrum licenses that they bought from the US government. Those licenses have conditions, which include use it or lose it clauses. Mm -hmm. You don't get to keep them forever and prevent them from being used, as happened in the past, where competitors would bid for spectrum and then prevent, not do anything with it, and then try and sell it to the highest bidder you know, resell it or whatever. Obviously, Blue Origin hasn't been able to get its rockets off the ground. As far as I can know, they don't have any launch plans in the near future, having done some sort of uh, media-rich uh, things where they flew people up above the 60-kilometer line so that they, you know, flew some high-profile figures to the to space mm -hmm. or low-Earth orbit, really. So they have to go into the arms of their competitors. On one hand, that does mean that Kuiper is progressing and it's launching satellites and starting to build out its network. It does get to keep its licenses and... I think the general consensus I get from reading around the space news is that people regard Kuiper, which is funded by Jeff Bezos by and large, is going to be the major competitor for Starlink, or at least that's what they think. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be good for everybody if there was a competitor to Starlink. And that's what I think is the good news here. Yeah, I, it is kind of interesting that Project Kuiper, which has been closely aligned with Blue Origin, the rocket company, uh, and for Project Kuiper to have to rely on SpaceX to get those uh, satellites into space, uh, must be a little bit galling. Uh, this is also, there's got to be some billionaire egos uh, at risk yeah. here in, <laughs> in all of this. <laughs> well, I, I did see a video of uh, Elon Musk in the New York Times where he did actually say something about this. And he wasn't too smug about it. He said, I'd welcome the competition, which I think is Elon speak for, 
Yeah, yeah, digging at you, bro, <laughs> digging at you. <laughs> I can imagine the pleased little smile when he found out that uh, Project Kuiper was going to have to use his rockets uh, to, yes. to get into orbit. That's that. that I think he's pretty nice. happy about it because SpaceX needs the money, right? Well, that too. I, aside from you know, he can text Jeff Bezos and be like, "Couldn't get your rocket launch, huh, buddy?" That uh, he also gets the money. Harder than it looks, but absolutely. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I yeah. mean, I'm just thinking it must really bother Jeff Bezos, who has been very successful in the higher layers of the OSI model uh, to run into layer one problems here. But launching rockets is hard. Mm -hmm. It's rocket science, Dre. It's rocket science. <laughs> Funny thing about that, it's rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. We don't have a tech bite, so we can let you go. Uh, before we do, Greg, uh, where can folks find you online if they want to reach you? Uh, I'm still on Twitter, although I'm fading away. Mostly I'm spending time chatting to real people in our Slack group. If you're interested in joining that, go to packetpushes.net slash Slack, and uh, I'd love to see you there. Ask me questions, join in the conversation, ask your questions to other people as well. Absolutely. Same thing. I'm in the Slack group. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me on Blue Sky. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, Do It. And as always, thanks to you for joining us for this episode of Network Break. If you like the show, please let folks know about it or leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts because it really helps. As always, thanks for listening.